Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and uh, the band is back again for another show. Yeah, two weeks in a row. Yeah, that's kind of a record. Yeah, it's like that sign at the workplace where... Day since an accident? Yeah, exactly. I saw one on Instagram that said uh, it had three, six, and then they were racing the five, and it said, day since I pooped my pants. And I was like, that's that's pretty funny. I was like, you almost made it a whole year. Yeah, close. Cool. Yeah, yeah, really good. (laughs) I just, I don't know why I said that, but that's what popped into my head. That is funny. Uh, Speaking of Instagram, uh, you know, I was scrolling through my Instagram the other day, and uh, that's where I get all my news. And I know that's weird because I work for a news agency. Well... You want to go to a trusted source. Yeah, and Instagram would be that trusted source. But I would look at my Instagram and my algorithm, and I think my algorithm either thinks that I'm a 14-year-old boy (laughs) or a partier, or I don't know what it is because— It's all golf, I bet. A lot of golf, but then this popped up. Read it. If you're looking for a sign to drink tonight, this is it. And it's a sign. It's a sign, like a street sign. Yeah. And so it got me thinking because my world is sort of complex because I'm a guy who is in active recovery Mm -hmm. and I love my sobriety. And truth be told, I owe everything good in my life right now to the fact that I am sober. And I'm living the best life I could possibly be living because I choose to be sober. But I also like... The irreverence and the rowdiness. Having a good time. Having a good time. Yeah. And so there's times that I would be at a party and, you know, being the 4th of July and uh, the month of July, a lot of barbecues going on. I go to parties and I get to see people at their best and at their worst. Mm -hmm. And inevitably that makes somebody come up to me and goes, why? Why would you do this to yourself? (laughs) <laughs> why would you do this? To why would you choose healthy living? No, no. Why would I put myself in this situation? Oh, come, coming to the barbecue. Coming to the barbecue oh, where I, I know there's going to be partying. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I have to explain to him it's like because I mean I like the the rowdiness. I like the raunchiness. What's the other option? Stay home. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing is I often tell people I got sober to live, not to hide. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, and I know there's a lot of people who are afraid to go out. And I think in the beginning of your sobriety, and if it keeps you sober, then stay home. I, I get that. Yeah. But that's not a world I want to live in. You know, well, I, that doesn't fit your personality. Like and, way before you ever took your first drink, you were Casey Scott. Yeah. Who likes to have a good time. But you know what? It took me a while to get there Yeah, because I used to think Casey Scott was that party guy. And if I wasn't that party guy, who was Casey Scott? Yeah. Because there was a time in my young adult life that it, that line got really blurred. And I thought I was that guy when actually that was just an exaggeration of my personality or even a character that I played on radio and TV that almost took over. I think that's actually very true. I think that you became a character Mm -hmm. and you were known for being that way. So it's sort of like, you know, when people see you, they sort of expect you to act like you acted on TV and radio. I I wanted to give the people what they wanted. And I thought that's what they wanted. And to some degree, that's what they did want. Well, sure. Uh, But other people didn't want it. My children, my ex-wife, my family, my employer, you know, and so that line got really blurry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now when I go to the parties, people go, why would you subject yourself to this kind of, you know, craziness? Yeah. And, and I, go, I think it's a valid question. And I go, because I like it. And I'm smart enough to get out when I need to. And I always tell people, I said, there's a golden hour when it comes to partying. Mm-hmm. And there's a golden hour when it comes to photography. There's the golden hour in the morning and the golden hour in the evening. And that golden hour is when the lighting is best and it's very hard to take a bad picture. Mm-hmm. And so when partying, there's a golden hour. It's when everything seems to be clicking. You see somebody you haven't seen for a while. It's like, hey, how are you? We should get together. This is great. How are the kids? How's everybody doing? Your dad all right? Cool. You know what I mean? Where everything just feels right. And it's just, you're like, oh, man, this is cool. When words are pre-slurring. Yeah, pre-slurring. <laughs> nobody's talking to your shoulder. Yeah. Nobody's in the corner fighting. Nobody's puking in the bushes out front. Right. It just seems like this is what parties are meant to be. Yeah. And it only lasts for about an hour. Yeah. 
and then the chaos erupts. <laughs> and sometimes it's good chaos. Most of the time it's not, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that's when I duck out. That's when I Irish exit. And we've talked about that on podcasts before. Yeah. And an Irish exit is where all of a sudden you just are gone. You just dip. <laughs> because I don't want to explain to you why I'm leaving as you're, you know, mm-hmm. got underwear on your head and you're swinging from a lamppost. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Which is kind of cool, but I just don't need to be around for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do like that because... I'm still a guy that wants to have fun. I still hang out with guys on the golf course who drink, and it, it, it's the world I live in, but it makes sense to me. You can clean up on the back 18 or I back 9 been. with them. Oh, yeah. Because by the time they're drunk, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm shooting good. I'm in the zone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, well, did you do that? What was uh, fourth like for you? Did you go to a barbecue? Or- yeah, I went to a party. And uh, everybody had a good time. I brought the DJ music and the fireworks, and everything was cool. Now, what about this coming 24th? Now, by the time people hear this, I yeah. know it's going to be the day after, but what do you, what's your plan for the 24th? For those of you who don't know, the 24th is uh, Pioneer Days here in the state of Utah. Big holiday. Yeah. So big that Carl Malone thought it was in honor of him. Yeah. Did you ever hear that story? <laughs> no. So Carl Malone gets but drafted. But I'm not surprised. Carl Malone gets drafted to the Utah Jazz. Yeah. He comes to Utah on the 23rd. Uh, wakes up on the and 24th. They have a huge parade. They shut down. It's the third largest in the country. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah. They shut down the streets and there's this parade. And he Malone, thought it was for he him. He thought it was for him. <laughs> he goes, they're excited I'm here. And he's like, oh, no, it's the Utah Pioneers. And all the years he was here, he probably kept thinking that. No, I think no. Yeah, I think after the first day. Oh, okay. But so it's a big party. So I, I go to barbecues and uh, I hang out and have a good time. But I usually leave right around 1030 or 11. Do you have to work that morning? Do I have any? to do the parade in the morning yeah. and then I have to do the parade in the afternoon. Okay. Uh, and so uh, and then I'll just go to a barbecue or go sit by the pool. And I just usually duck out when the conversation leads to nowhere. Yeah. When somebody's telling me what they think's important and I have to act like I'm interested, that's when I leave. So it's funny that you bring this up. I had this near exact conversation with a teenager this last week. So as people know, uh, my specialty is more anxiety disorders. I I do not claim to be an addiction specialist. However, if you work with humans, you're going to work with addiction. A lot of times those intertwine. Yeah. And I'm working a lot with teenagers and young adults, college kids. So of course, lots of weed. We talk about this all the time. This kid told me, he said, you know, uh, I had never really drank before. But I've been to a few parties this summer and had, you know, drank a little. And first of all, he said how terrible it tastes and how he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And he said, but I noticed at these parties I go to that they're really fun for a little while, like an hour or two. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it gets sloppy and nobody's fun. You can't understand them. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to go to those parties anymore. And so we talked about you know, following your intuition, and that's probably good. But he was picking up on that same thing that, you know, people are fun for a minute and then it flips and things get out of control. Normally we won't bring our guest in this early, but I'm going to bring it. Chelsea Rupp, she's our guest today. Mm-hmm. And as we were coming up the elevator and talking about it, we were talking about our early days. Now, I don't know what your DOC was, but we were talking about me being an alcoholic and I'm coming up on my five years of sobriety. And I said, the crazy thing is, is that all the times that I was drinking, I thought I was having the best time ever. But in reality, I was going to concerts of uh, musicians I loved and not remembering the whole thing. You know what I mean? Or I would go on vacations to places that are exotic and beautiful and not really exploring it because I'm more concerned about getting alcohol or where the local bar is. Yeah. You know, and so all these things that I thought I was doing and alcohol was enhancing, it was really robbing me of some of life's simple pleasures. Sure. Uh, And and I thought that, uh, you know, and Chelsea said it too, you thought you needed this to have fun. In reality, it didn't really bring much more fun to it. It just took away from a lot of cool experiences you could have had. Absolutely. And to think of all the wasted mornings on vacations and how Mm -hmm. many times I just was sick or like, needing to drink to feel better and the preoccupation with like you said the second that we landed figuring out where i could get alcohol or pills or something it was crazy i mean i and i talked about this you know when i was married um when we would pick restaurants it was never based on the food it was you know what i mean it was like do you want mexican do you want italian it was always do they have a bar 
Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's that's how much in control my drinking was of my behavior. Yeah. It, like, I didn't care what the food was. I just wanted to know if there was a bar and it was inside there and I had access to it. And if they said, oh, the tacos are the best, but they don't have any an alcohol license. Yeah. You'd pass it. Uh, yeah. Every yeah. time. I was like, well, no, I'm not going somewhere where I can't have a drink. Are you crazy? Yeah. And then you flip that sentence around. It's like the only reason you'll go to a restaurant is to get a drink. Are you crazy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you could stay home for that. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You get some missing out on a six pack some, some wonderful and save everybody food. a ton of money. Yeah. But yeah. you trick yourself into these experiences that you think that alcohol needs to be a part of yep. when reality is, is it just takes away from everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the common experience. You know, people uh, miss, they don't remember or miss out on some of life's, you know, socializing. If you go on vacation, you don't feel like going for the hike that everyone else went on. Because you're hungover, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and you just want to recuperate so you can get ready to party again. Yeah. Our guest today is Chelsea Rupp. She is the fitness pillar lead at... Uh, Fit to recover. And we always love having you guys here. Ian's an amazing guy. And you guys are doing wonderful things. You've got two locations now. Yes. you got one in Warm and one in Salt Lake. Yes. And we've had guests on uh, from Fit to Recover for, since the beginning. And they've always got wonderful stories. So where does the story of Chelsea begin? I love that. Um, first of all, thank you guys for having me. And I've never done a podcast, so this is new for me. Well, we were talking off air, and I said, you know, you've told your story, I'm sure. And you're like, well, not really. I don't, I, don't, I don't share it all that often. No. I've never taken the opportunity to have a platform to share. So this well, is new, exciting. Well, thanks for coming. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, so where does the story begin? Um, here in Utah, in Midvale, is where I grew up. Um, I have two half-sisters and one sister. I'm the youngest. My parents are still together. And my whole childhood, we didn't, we weren't religious, so that was kind of a hard thing growing up here. Which people don't understand, when you live in Utah and the predominant religion is LDS, there is kind of a, it's a weird scenario because I grew up the same way. I think we're one of the only two houses in our neighborhood that yeah. wasn't LDS. So when you're really young, you're invited to everything. But then when you get to about fourth to ninth grade, you're excluded from quite a bit of stuff. Yes. And you kind of feel like an outcast in your own neighborhood. I remember, and this is no slight on anybody I grew up with, where certain kids weren't allowed to come to my house. Exactly. Because we weren't LDS. And parents might fear that there were drugs and alcohol or other things going on. Or you just weren't aligned with their beliefs and yeah. their teachings. Right. And, and, and I, I mean, truth be told as a parent, I get both sides, but it's hard for a seventh grader to comprehend yeah. why somebody can't come to your house because you're not of their faith. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was very isolating. Um, and I had a chip on my shoulder about that for a long time. Um, but yeah, so my family wasn't religious and they were actually like nobody drink or use drugs at my house, um, which was beautiful. I think that my, a lot of my extended family has addiction issues, and my parents were really aware of that, so they just never did. I think they started drinking very casually once I moved out, you know, a glass of wine here and there. Um, I. So you think that was purposeful on your parents' part? Like they, First of all, sounds like for that generation that was – progressive because people didn't usually talk about family history of addiction. So they were aware of it. Obviously, it sounds like maybe they had a conversation and they were like, we just don't want to bring that here. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. That's cool. Yeah. I don't feel like I was a part of that conversation. I mm -hmm. just knew that they just never, ever drink in front of us. I remember one New Year's Eve, they got wine coolers and my sister and I watched them drink them and waited for them to act silly. Like they yeah. both drank one and we were like, yeah. what's going to happen? <laughs> like the ball to drop on New Year's uh -huh. Eve. I was yeah. like, what's going to happen? This is, oh my gosh. And exactly. nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you tried alcohol or a substance? Yes. Um, I was 13. And I mean, it was the same sort of situation. A friend and I stole some of those wine coolers from the fridge outside. We drank them as fast as we could. Didn't feel anything, so then we laid down and stood up really fast <laughs> and thought that the head rush was oh, that we is. were drunk. Yeah. When we were kids, we used to think drinking out of a straw would get you drunker. 
<laughs> I'm going to tell you it doesn't. It doesn't. It just makes it harder. <laughs> yeah, it slows you down. So walk me through. I want to know, you know, your curiosity or what you thought was going to happen at the age of 13, still in a wine cooler from the fridge out back. Um, You know, I had a really rough childhood, and I think that I thought that that would help me feel a different way. I've always had a hard time in my skin. And I think I wanted to feel better than I felt. And so, you know, you see in the movies how fun it is. Mm-hmm. Still, it's so commercials fun. On every TV. commercial, yeah. yes, every TV show, every song is just about how fun it is. And so, I know that I was searching for pleasure and enjoyment and happiness that I couldn't find. When you say you had a rough childhood, um, was it anxiety? Was it the isolation? Was it a combination of all that? Is that is that what you mean? It was a combination of all of it, and to be fair, my parents and I are best friends now, and we've talked through this, but they weren't great parents to me. My dad had a lot of anger issues. We didn't show emotion at home, no hugs, no I love yous. Mm. Um, And my sister, she was perfect, quote unquote. Um, And I was just kind of an angry kid, and I was really anxious. I was depressed. I was put in therapy at like 13. I've been in therapy pretty much since. And so I just always felt less than. And I think I was really hard for my parents because I was angry and defiant. Yeah, no, I I get it. And and when you're 13 and back then uh, going to a therapist, that has a different feeling than being 13 and going to a therapist now. Yeah. Uh, You know what I mean? I mean, back then it was like there's. You you don't tell your friends you're going. Yeah, it's very embarrassing. There's something wrong with me. And, and, and nowadays, kids are talking about their therapists and exchanging therapist ideas and stuff like that yeah, because yeah, it's more commonplace. It's yeah. still a little on the edge. There's still a stigma, absolutely. But you're right. Like my uh, my daughter, uh, since we divorced, I've had made sure all my kids had somebody to talk to. And then with the recent passing of their grandmother, um, and I've overheard her and a couple different friends talk about, well, what did your therapist say about that? You know, and like oh. that's part of the conversation that they have these resources and they don't have to feel ashamed or embarrassed about it. And to me, that's wonderful because I certainly didn't grow up. I would have been something I would have not wanted no. anyone yeah. to know. About. So you say you were looking for a little bit of an escape, maybe some enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, and, and you thought you might find it in a wine cooler. Yep. Absolutely. So that just started progressing and I found friends that fit what I wanted to do. So I had always been a heavy partier pretty much from like junior high on. And that was me. And it was like fun, you know, again, quotation mark fun. And I was a party person and people loved it and I loved it and I could keep it together at the same time. Like it was pretty out of control always, but I never missed a day of work from it. You know, I did all the things on the checklist. Um, And then it honestly wasn't until, I mean, I had some really toxic relationships with some people that were addicts themselves. And I know that I wasn't in that place yet because I did not understand it. it. It made me angry. I thought that it was my fault. What can I do better? Why don't you love me enough to choose me? You know, rewinding back, I wish that I could go back and just say, I'm sorry, you know, because this has nothing to do with me. I can't attack you every time you use. You know, it's 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 crazy. And this will be the first time I've ever said this on the podcast is that you're talking about this. And I remember I mean, I've been a part of interventions. I've been a part of talking to people about their abuse. You know what I mean? And I had no business being in that room because <laughs> of my history. You know what I mean? But I was like, and, and telling these people what they need to do. And and if I would have done a self-check and an inventory, I would have been like, you should just shut up and listen. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, but, you, but that's the disease is that you think you're in control. Yeah. But you're not because you're checking all the right boxes. Exactly. But, but nobody's ever called this out or never something's never happened bad enough to where it's been called. Yep, exactly. And I feel like it was like that for many years where I was fine. Um, and then this seems like a weird thing to happen to likely trigger something. But I owned a CrossFit gym for about seven years. And so it was my family. It was my entire life, my everything. I was drinking heavily during that. But again, just 
they loved it. I was the party person. It was fun. But also, you're running a gym. You're in great shape. You know, and it's hard for somebody to go, oh, you're just killing yourself. And you're like, are you kidding? This yeah. is the best shape I have ever been in. <laughs> exactly. And I can do 100 push-ups. Yep. How is this killing me? It's so true. And it was my out, you know, like the way that I looked on the outside was not reflecting what I was doing on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, me and my partners decided to sell it. CrossFit's not super lucrative. <laughs> um, and I don't think I ever dealt with the loss of that because the new owners, for whatever reason, didn't want us to be a part of that gym anymore. And so it was like I lost 200 family members. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I was angry and lonely and I had a job that I just absolutely hated. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but my friend is, but that seems like a trauma. <laughs> well, it, it's a loss for sure, right? And that I've started saying that it's a trauma. Like for the longest time, I thought trauma had to be this big, terrible, awful thing, but it was, it was a huge loss. And then just being so unhappy at my job that was taking up all of my time. Um, I just remember one night deciding not to drink for some reason. And I was dripping with sweat i was shaking it was something i had never experienced mm-hmm. and that scared me i thought oh this i have been drinking every day and i don't know for how long you know and it was every night after work that was also another excuse like well it's not interfering but the night that i didn't drink i got sick you know um that so I, scared you it scared me it didn't stop me but it scared me and i would like almost test myself and start you know, I'd go back to like months of drinking every night. And then I knew that if I didn't drink for four days, by the fourth day, the sweats and the shaking would stop. Mm. Like I started to know that. But that's an addict brain. Yeah. Trying to justify. Right. Or rationalize your drinking habits because you go, yeah, I drink for 67 days straight. But then when I wanted to stop, I stopped for 32 days. Now, you know the exact day because on the 33rd, it felt so good to start drinking again. Yeah. But that's how you justify and rationalize it. Alcoholics can't stop for 34 days. <laughs> I do it all the time, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I think what's you're pointing out a lot of typical justifications. You're like, I'm not missing work. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm exercising, working out, running a gym. I'm fit. You know, I can go for a certain amount of time. I can choose to stop for a while, and and I know how long I can go. So all these sorts of things are very, wouldn't you say, typical, you know, ways of justifying and rationalizing. Alcoholics are the guy you see at the end of the bar who can't lift his head at the end of the night. I'm not that guy. Exactly. They're the people on the corner, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I don't have a problem like them. Yeah. Um, That's And I did that for so long. And I even... So I finally knew that I needed help. I finally just couldn't. Hey, let's not jump to that real quick. Did any point during this, did you have loved ones or family members or maybe somebody you were dating going, hey, you know, Chelsea, uh, you you might want to check this. So, yes, um, that's a hard story. But, yes, I was engaged and he was actually somebody that worked with me at the job that I was really unhappy at. And I cheated on him with somebody it was this big messy secret and so he decided to kind of out all of my secrets so scorned lover type deal yeah so he did it to hurt me and i have since reached out and told him he saved my life because he told my mom that i had a i was also taking mass amounts of pain pills Mm -hmm. and he told my mom and my mom is my best friend and so she was like he must be lying because he said that you're cheating on him and that you have an alcohol and drug problem and this can't be true and i lied to her and i don't lie to my mom i mean i'm sure i did over and over because i was a drunk but like i just don't lie to my mom to her face and i remember going home and and the feeling of like i just lied to my best friend and i'm so alone because my fiance has gone all because of these problems, you know? So I started looking into recovery centers. I okay, once again, before we get oh. there, because I'm curious. I'm so excited to get to the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I get that. I get that. But I want everyone to go on a ride because, and if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to talk about it. But how did you get into the pain pill? Oh, that, see, we've been doing this so long. I was just about to interrupt and ask the same thing. I mean, you, I you, I mean, it's your story. And once again, you tell it. But I mean, I think it, people might be interested because. And I assume we're talking about opiates like mm-hmm. Oxy. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for asking that. Um, I hate feeling like I'm blaming 
the healthcare system. No, 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 no. There's no blame here. You okay. know, I mean, I mean, no, we we get it. We've one of the many... things I tell people mm-hmm. is there's a big difference between a reason and an excuse. Okay. And if we can talk about why and how something happened, that's just a reason. Yeah. It's like this is how it happened. You know, these these this was my experience. Versus, I'm not responsible because of what happened. That's an excuse. Yes. And I don't think you're going to say he's it so that good, way. huh? He's yeah. so good, right? <laughs> can I get your card? Yes. <laughs> I'll give you my number. So the reason that led you to opioids? So I have fibromyalgia, so just chronic pain. And then with competing in CrossFit and Olympic lifting, like constant pounding on your joints, your muscles. So I had to get a neck surgery eventually because of it. And the solution leading up to that, because I didn't want to get surgery, was just they were just throwing pain pills at me. And I am an addict. And so I was... I was loving that. And I would go to a few different doctors Mm -hmm. and just have mass amounts. And it's funny because in my story, I always say I never stole from anybody. I never took from anybody. But looking back, there were probably five times where I did go and take my mom's pain pills. And I used to steal their wine. Like, so I did. I didn't take a ton of money. I didn't steal their car and wreck it. Mm-hmm. But I took from them too. And there's the deception that comes with addiction, right? You were mm-hmm. deceiving these different doctors and getting these different prescriptions. And nowadays, really just in the last five or six years, they've increased technology to where that would be really almost impossible to do. Doctor but shopping. yeah, this kind of where you get multiple prescriptions from different doctors on these controlled substances like yeah. opioids. But back then it was, you know, it was a piece of paper, you know, wild, it was wild easy. Yeah, to get that in. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so I was going to, that was my assumption is that because you're an athlete and you work out and you were doing these competitions that eventually our bodies start to have aches and pains and that's probably where a lot, I mean, a lot, when you say a lot of our guests on the show started with their opiate addiction. Majority, I would yeah, say. Yeah, through legitimate means, right? Yeah. So, and from the healthcare side of it, I'll speak to that. Um, you know, docs who, uh, we don't do a ton of that prescribing in the world of psychiatry, but docs who do prescribe those sorts of things, you know, you think of it from a doctor's point of view. They're relying on information from other experts. Mm-hmm. And what is a doctor's oath? You know, they want to help. Mm-hmm. That, that's their oath. And somebody comes in in pain and they're like, oh, well, there's this new medicine. And, you know, it's, it's, we, you want to use it as prescribed, but here's the, you know. Yeah. And, and then you get two or three of those docs saying, you know, all of a sudden you have a bucket load of, of oxys. But my, my point is that, that I figured that was kind of your way of doing it. And also doctors are only relying on the information that we give them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you can lie to a doctor. You know, it's, I mean, they're, they're doctors. They're not people will tell lie me detectors. Like yeah. later they're like, well, I thought you knew I was lying. I'm like, I appreciate that you think I'm clairvoyant or something, but like, you know, being, I assume you're here because you want help. I didn't didn't think you're here for it. Right. And that's partly on us. We have to know when a person's struggling with addictions, that they're not going to tell the truth and you have to have that training. But there's got to be red flags. It's a team approach. It's a team approach in healthcare. How about your feelings? So I'm, I'm a little more interested in when you did drink as a young person. And then when you did eventually start taking pain pills, did that feeling of anxiety, of self-consciousness, did that just evaporate? Did that feel like a reprieve for you? It did. In the be- like, well, in the for a long time. Yeah. For a long time, the medicine worked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a very insecure person, and so social situations. I would always show up to a party drunk mm-hmm. and then look like I drink like a pre-game normal person. So yeah. That you, yeah, and then you're like, I just had one cocktail. Yeah. But yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and the reason I bring that up is that is such a common... And I think, from my point of view, very understandable reason why people overdo it with alcohol and things like uh, benzodiazepines or oxycotton or any of those kinds of things is because we're a lot of what we do in life is self-medicating our mental health, our, our feelings of depression, anxiety, insecurities. Um, in fact, uh, the number one reason people call in sick for work, they, they always say they're sick, they have the flu, but studies show by and large the number one reason is mental health. You know, people like feel anxious, they feel depressed, they're having anxiety, uh, and so they call in and miss work. So what the reality is the biggest part of our health care that should be treated, 
I think is our mental and emotional health because then it leads to healthier behaviors. People don't drink as much and they're less likely to abuse drugs. They're less likely to miss work. They're more likely to exercise and eat well and take care of themselves. And so it comes, a lot of it comes back to are we able to connect with uh, younger people like children and teenagers and find out are they doing okay? Because yeah. otherwise, they, we have this strong drive as humans to feel better. I want to get my needs met. And if you look at most of our big decisions throughout the day on a day-to-day basis, it comes back to you're trying to get your needs met. And it's understandable that a young person who struggled with that would end up using alcohol and then drugs later to, to kind of feel better, right? Yeah. So, Absolutely. Chelsea, at uh, the height of your addiction, were you using uh, pills and alcohol at the same time, or did it one take over? Both, but it became more about alcohol, for sure. I because, think just see, because it was easier to get a hold of. And then that's not normal on this podcast. Normally what takes over is the opioids because it's a stronger addiction. Uh, but you, you know, you said that alcohol was easier access and you, you said you didn't steal, but you did, but not yeah. really. And it just seemed like that was probably the easier road to go down. Yeah, definitely more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I had I made sure I had friends that were pretty heavy drinkers themselves, so I could disguise myself in those groups. Mm. Kind of hide in plain sight. Yeah. So we're going to now get to the point where you've been trying to get to. <laughs> okay. So you've uh, you've lied to your mom. Yes. Uh, you're no longer engaged. Right. Uh, and how are you feeling? Completely defeated. Nothing in my life is going well. And I feel completely alone. So I, on my own, started looking into treatment. Um, But again, I'd never even Googled anything like that. And never... Were you admitting to yourself you had a problem? Yes. Or were you just exploring? Because there's a lot of times uh, people in their addiction will kind of do some fact-finding. You know, and I'm just testing the waters. They do it for a couple of reasons. One, because they're curious. And the other one is to buy them some time, mm-hmm. uh, to give them some ammunition against the next time a loved one or a family member comes to them and says they have a problem. Well, yeah. I, I, I've been looking this. I, yeah, I, I'm okay. I'm figuring this out. And it's just, it's, it's, you're just buying time. Yeah. Because by the time you've got to that point, you know, but oh, you yeah. may not have admitted to yourself yet. I, at that point, I had definitely admitted it to myself, but I was also very positive that I wasn't going to admit it to anybody else. So I was looking at outpatient that I could still function at my job all day and then just go at night. Um, and I found a place and they were very, they were pushing me against that. You know, they really recommend it living there first and then transitioning the way that most rehab facilities do. Why do you think they were doing that? Um... Because when I worked for the recovery industry, many people tried to do the exact same thing you did. And we tried to get them into a recovery center. And they usually would come back with us and go, you're just trying to get more money from me. You're trying. I can't do that. I've still got to work. i got a family to do. And, and you just want to get more money out of it. And this is just a scam. And I'd always say, it's not. But research suggests if we can get you here, the likelihood of you staying sober is a lot greater going down this road. I'm not saying it's not possible doing this IOP, but it's a lot harder and the likelihood of you staying sober is less. Yeah, and I think they definitely explained that to me. I was on the fence both ways. Like I was thinking that they were just in it for the money. Um, And, you know, you think uh, somebody that I listen to a lot always says, chronically unique like i thought well everybody else can stop their life for 30 days 45 days and go to rehab i can't you Mm -hmm. know i'm a single person that has to pay all my bills i'm the different one good for them that they were able to take a trip or go on a vacation for 30 days i wish i could but i can't exactly and i was positive of it that was my story you know and i used to tell people and even told myself this i go here's the reality if you don't take this time to stop Time is going to make you stop. Absolutely. Uh, and that's going to come in the form of jail, death, homelessness, or whatever. Eventually, we're going to have to address this. Yes. And so I, I get the IOP, and, and if it works for you, I think that's great. But 
eventually this is going to have to come to a boiling point and figure it out. Yeah. And it did. <laughs> so I did IOP and it actually was the first time I stayed sober for 30 days. So it was great. But I ended up drinking. They kicked me out. Um, and so that I just spiraled for a few weeks. Okay, wait. We got, I want to stop. I like this. Okay. So after 30 days, why did you drink again? Because I had it. I I I had learned the ways, you I, know. I have you got the playbook. Yeah, yeah. You figured it out. Yeah, I'm fine. Look at Once me. Once again, you're unique. <laughs> Look at me. I did it in 30 days. <laughs> yeah. And I always tell people, everybody gets that 30 days of sobriety, and I I haven't done it yet because I I know me. I'm just going to take this for a test drive. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, you know, I mean, I'm just going to open it up a little bit and see how it feels. False sense of control. Yeah, yep. because I did it. I did 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. And you stop remembering how bad it was. Isn't that you crazy? Know? It's like a breakup with a really bad ex. Yeah. You start just remembering how good they were in the good times. Even if it was 15% of the time, that's what's stuck in your head. And that's what I kept going back to. It was like, but it was so much fun. I can do it again. I can control it. And I can't. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kick you out of IOP. Yes. Which, yeah, that just threw me for a loop. I spiraled bad. Um, I quit the job that I hated. I had another job, but it wasn't going well. Um, And then just one night I met up with my family for dinner for my sister's birthday. And I thought I was fine. And when I drove home, they were all at my house and basically were like, we followed you. We shouldn't even let you drive. Like, it's so clear that you're not okay. So I ended up going to detox and then going and staying at that same rehab facility for 30 days. Um, okay. How did the, uh, how did it go when they sat you down in your house? Were you willing? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I remember it vividly. It's such a rough memory, but um, I have a specific family member that is like the type of drunk that she doesn't know who we are half the time. You know, she shows up to Christmas 7 a.m. with beer in her hand. Like she's just never not going to be a drunk. She can't form sentences. It's really hard to be around her. And I remember just sobbing and saying, I don't want to be her. Mm. And and like that's where my life is going. Um. So, yeah, I was, I mean, terrified. Did you have to detox? You did. Mm-hmm. Almost died. Worst thing ever. Yeah. Oh. Shared a room with, with a guy who snored. Oh. And then, I mean, it was it was not good. Is that what almost killed you? No. Yeah. I, my breathing got so low that they thought my heart was going to stop, mm. and they took me down to the ER. I know this because two months after recovery, they sent me a bill. Oh. <laughs> they were like, yeah, I saved your life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but people don't realize, you know, two of the most deadliest addictions to detox from are opioids and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people who listen to this podcast who tried to cold turkey it at home. And that's yeah. not recommended. There it may is- be some listeners that have friends or family that died from that. I can tell you I've worked with patients who've lost friends and family members who tried to detox on their own. Yes. And so you detoxed and then you went into a 30 day program. Yes. Where did you go? You don't have to say. I'm not going to, because it wasn't a great experience on my end. And I've heard really wonderful things about them since. But you went and is this the only time you've been to an inpatient rehab? Yes. And, but you hear you are sober. No, I did not stay sober. Oh, it's been a wild ride. Okay, well, let's go. (laughs) Um, Yes, I am currently sober, but I have less than a year. Um, So this was seven years ago that I went to to inpatient. Um, They, it was honestly a good experience for most of it. In fact, there's still some days where I get like a homesick feeling Mm -hmm. from that place and Mm -hmm. from just the people and the safety Mm -hmm. of not being able to make choices and mess up. Um. But I was kind of forced, for lack of a better word, into a conversation with my parents that I wasn't ready to have a therapy session. And um, and it was really hard. And it was about childhood trauma. Um, and knowing my parents, I, I explained, you know, emotions weren't a thing for us. We just didn't talk about stuff. And um, something happened to me when I was five from my uncle. And 
so I had to tell my mom and dad. Mm. And they weren't okay. I wasn't okay. And the next day, this recovery center told me I was ready to go home. Oh. Yeah. So I left. I made an excuse. You know, I got picked up. I made an excuse to be on my own for a half hour, and I went to the liquor store. And the cycle just kept happening. I, I mean, I couldn't count my relapses. I had more time drinking and using than sober in the last seven years. Um, I finally went to shout out day spring outpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all they offer is outpatient. And I just thought I don't, I can't do inpatient again, but I need help again. Like I know that I need help. Were and, you able to work and keep a job mm-hmm. during those years? Yes. And that's, I used to work at, um, a different gym and I told them when I needed to go and they completely supported me and held my job for me. That's great. So they were incredible. Um, and, and when I went back to day spring, I also, I called the owner and I told him, um, and he just said, Oh, I'm just so happy. You don't have to get another surgery. That's what I thought you were calling. He's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, ah, booze, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you went to Dayspring, and what did you like about Dayspring? The the therapist there. In fact, one of them is still my therapist. Um, so knowledgeable. So I, it just felt like home. Um, I felt really connected to the people, but safe. Like no one was ever crossing boundaries, which I felt like at the previous place there was a lot of. I felt really unsafe there. It was a, it was just a bad place for me personally. Um, but I felt close. We were, we were a good team. You know, we'd call each other out. We'd support each other. Um, if people did mess up, of course, you know, they, they had more time. They had more assignments to do. We had to figure out what happened, but there wasn't like the shame that I felt from the place before. Mm -hmm. Um, so I graduated that and stayed sober for the longest amount of time I had nine months. And then I relapsed again. Why do you think you relapsed? I just, I, it's so crappy. That was really hard. I no, yeah, no, swear. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, thanks you. Cause he does the edit of the swear words. Crappy. Yeah. <laughs> because of how much time and effort and money I'd spent on getting better. Mm-hmm. Like truly I wanted it, but I don't think I wanted it. It was, it was easier to not have to work on myself and like not have to see things and be sad. And, you know, sometimes I won't. Maybe there's not an answer. You know what I mean? And, and there, maybe subconsciously there is, or, or whatever it may be. But we, like, I, I I don't know why I did it. Yeah, it's very true. I yeah. don't know why. I did and, it. And, and and that's hard to explain to somebody because you did just put in seven months and time and effort and money and all this stuff, and you're probably seeing the fruits of your labor and your life going well. And people go, "Why would you do that?" And you go, "I don't know." I, I wish I I wish I had a better answer. I would this is where I would say it's that's a wonderful example of the fact that we do have an a less conscious mind, you know, preconscious unconscious mind and that it has a lot more influence over what we do than we give credit. Absolutely. Uh, most people nowadays in our kind of modern technology society where we use our brains for work a lot and all of that, we assume that our conscious mind is always in control of what we do. And the reality is there's a lot. It's an iceberg. Our conscious mind is the tip sticking out and our unconscious mind gets trained and conditioned over time. And it was, when there's strong emotion like trauma, that's very conditioning very quickly to our mind and our unconscious thought. Um, drugs and alcohol, obviously we know from a physiological standpoint, are rewiring our brain when we use constantly over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then emotional and behavioral patterns start to feel automatic. And so we do things. It's not an excuse. It's, an, it's, a, it's a reason. It's an yeah. explanation. Mm-hmm. There, there, we have to be willing. I think when you're coming out of recovery, that's one of the tools that people need to emphasize. If I'm not careful... My unconscious mind, those patterns that have been trained into me, they're going to trip me up. And I might come out the other side of a relapse and go, I don't really know why I did that. Yeah. Like there's not like there wasn't a specific reason that I, my conscious mind can point to. And so that's why you need to have a good program when you come out and you need to work that program to help yourself overcome the programming that your unconscious mind has. 
That's yeah. why we say in recovery, once you say you've got this, you don't got this. Right. Oh, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if everyone's like, oh, I got this, it's like, ooh, watch. Ooh. I mean, that's like the knock on wood yeah. type stuff. It's yeah. like, yeah. you better knock on something quick. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. nobody's got yeah. this. And my sobriety is rented and the payments due daily. Yep. Absolutely. So you end up relapsing. Yes. And that lasted, I mean, just, I just fought back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes it'd be a couple of days, sometimes it'd be weeks. Um, and all the while I was, I was still talking to my therapist and being 95% honest, you know, <laughs> withholding some, yeah. um, and he, I mean, he's just wonderful and, and I really felt safe sharing every time I thought he's just going to say, you know what? I can't have you as a client anymore. You know, like, what are we doing? You're wasting all of my time, but he never did. Um, and finally just one day I didn't even talk to my husband or family about it i just was like i just told wes on the phone i think i need to do day spring again like i'm like that's so embarrassing to me but do you guys let people come back and he's like absolutely it's called the fast track like for people it, i think it was 12 weeks the first time and he's like it's six weeks so i did that um and it was more like mental health based and of course like talking about addiction and i will say also after the first two times I didn't have a program. Mm. I, I was really resistant to, I don't know if you guys talk about AA on here. I'm mm, not like, sure. yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I like felt a little bit, some of the meetings I had gone to felt a little bit like predatorial. No, I, I and look, I think AA is a wonderful program and for many people has given them their life back and, it, and it's responsible for their sobriety. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me, and it's not a program that I, that I use. But let's, it's like when we were talking off air. You've got to find a program that you can get behind that makes sense to you that you can live every day. If you can't find that program, the chances of your sobriety working are slim. Yeah. And so you've got to find one that makes sense to you. But what I'm hearing from you is the first couple of times you got out, you didn't have a program that you were following. Yeah, I did not. You just thought your graduation from the IOP or or the recovery center was your completion of your work. And mm-hmm. then you were just going to go back into the world and not have any of those safety nets or any of those things to help you maintain your sobriety. Absolutely. And I never even reached back in the toolbox with what I learned. I learned so much and I never utilized it. It's like I never even reopened the book. Um, I didn't even have a big book at this point. But part of the stipulation, I guess, for coming back on the relapse track was that I needed to be involved in an AA meeting. And so I found one that worked for me, and um, it's still something that's, that can be hard for me and challenging for me, especially with where I work, because my job is in recovery. I talk about it 10 hours a day, and then to have to go and be in an AA meeting, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk about this anymore. Need to sh- you know, turn the brain off. Yeah, yeah. I get it. But it and is something there's got to be I, a weird feeling of going... I work in this field and I help people get sober and I still need help. And I still need help. Yeah. And and there's got to be kind of a, and I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but a little bit of like, hey, look, I'm helping people get their sobriety. And I'd say yes and no, because like, I think that's one of the complaints about working with like a therapist or a psychologist if they've never had the problem. And so it's, you can look at it from both ways. I, I actually think. If, if let's say you were to go to an AA meeting and somebody you'd been working with at Fit to Recover saw you there, I actually think that's a great example to be setting yeah. for, for other people that are maybe behind you in their process. I agree, honestly, with both things, because I do think that people have connected with me knowing that I'm a real person that also struggles. And a lot of the members there have a lot more sobriety than me. And so here I am barking orders or, you know, trying to inspire them. And I'm kind of like, I feel the urge to like cower and be like, Mm -hmm. no, I I don't know what I'm saying. You guys know, you Mm -hmm. teach me the ways, you know. So it goes back and forth. I do keep feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome, a little bit of guilt. Like, do I deserve this job? Do I have anything to say? I'm still struggling. The answer is yes. And I and the answer is yes. And I will say this time around, I've stuck with AA. I have a sponsor, still see my therapist. And the one thing that changed, and this isn't a plug, this isn't anything, but was the day that I walked into Fit to Recover. I had kind of just, I'll never give up, but I'd thrown my hands up 
to the idea. I just was like, okay, hey, this is just my life until it kills me, you know, and maybe I'll get a year sober one time, but I'm going to be on this path. Kind of resigned yourself to the fact that yeah. it would always be in your life. Yep. Relapse over and over and over again. This is just who I am. And something shifted when I walked in. I've always heard of them. In fact, I think when I was in treatment, we went to a meeting there mm. and I just thought this is a cool place because it combines two things that are Don't very you love the model. Like, oh my it's gosh. So great. It's yeah. the most perfect model. Yeah. And yeah, it combines my two passions, you know? Um, Do you want me to give you my uh, Charlie Brown five cent diagnosis? Please. Okay. <laughs> That's Lucy. She's Lucy. Sure, whatever. <laughs> I remember talking about facts. <laughs> From the beginning of this podcast, you talked about being a young girl, feeling isolated, uh, kind of a loner, if you will, to the moment you walked in to fit to recover, you found a community. Now, Dr. Matt, what do we always say on this podcast? The opposite of addiction isn't... Isn't so- sobriety, it, or isn't... Abstinence. Abstinence, yeah. Abstinence. We always say it. The, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. The opposite of addiction is community. Connection and community, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I believe that. And so it sounds like when you walked in the doors, you found a community that you could be a part of that had the same trials and tribulations that you did and had the same goal. And that was bonding together, working through this, and trying to figure out how to make it better. Absolutely. That's awesome. It's so cool. And like... And I can still struggle there, you know, because something about being in the fitness industry, it's my passion, but it's also really hard. Like Mm -hmm. I struggle so bad with body dysmorphia. I've struggled with eating problems before because you think, okay, well, I'm on the stage or I have the mic, so I have to look and act a certain way. Mm -hmm. So when I was at my old job, it was like, of course, the owners knew, my closest people knew, but I'm like 700 members don't need to know that I struggle every single day to stay sober. So I just faked it but i can walk into ftr every day and we do we always do a connection like a circle up before and i can be honest and be like drinking is on my mind today and no one's like you know like nobody backs away from me nobody can be your authentic self yes and it's just different to not be hiding everything and also so much healthier it's so much like what what is the the alcoholic statement secrets keep us sick yeah and i i like that little phrase because it is true whether you're an addict or not if you can't be your authentic self emotionally you're not healthy absolutely so you say the difference is you found a community you found a program Mm -hmm. and you're working it so as of today how many days of sobriety do you have july 24th which is actually my birthday would be will be eight months they have that prayed for you every year. Oh, my I, gosh. They do. Yeah. Me and Carl Malone. You and Carl Malone. <laughs> <laughs> See what she did there? So you're, you're coming up. Uh, you're, by the time this hits, you're going to be a year. No, eight months. Eight, eight months. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. And for those who don't know, uh, Fit to Recover, two locations, Orm and Salt Lake. Yeah. Uh, you do a couple other things. You talk about being the... Uh, well, let's, ha- let's have her explain what they do. Okay. Oh, I love I think it. I would love That's that. That's where I was going with <laughs> Oh, okay. Now, I was going to say, she's the fitness pillar lead, but what are some of the other pillars and what is Fit to Recover all about? Sorry, Charlie Brown. How's my bad? I love that. Um, fit to recover. So we have four pillars. Uh, one is the service pillar. So we like to do service projects and help out the community, whether it's like last week we handed out 400 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to the unsheltered. Oh, that's great. Um, and people can come and help if they want to out of the kindness in their heart, or they can come and get community service hours. So that's pretty cool. Then we have the nutrition pillar. So we have a kitchen, a huge, beautiful kitchen, um, We do meal prep, but we also do classes because a lot of people that come in are either straight from treatment or maybe straight from gel, and they haven't been taking care of themselves. They don't know how to make meals, really, or how to feed themselves properly. And we have a community fridge where anybody can come in that needs food, and they can grab, like, no questions asked. So that's really great. And then we have creative arts, which is we do music nights, open mic night, um, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. We do art night, but I went to music night and it's like improv. It's wild to me that somebody just starts playing music and then people get up and start playing with them. Like, I'm like, no, they practiced this before. Oh, that's they awesome. must have a secret, but they just all jam with each other and yeah. some people sing and will like come up with lyrics on the spot. And wow. It's really cool. That's fun. It's a very safe, safe community. Um, 
It's just about love and connection. Being involved in a creative pursuit, like as you're actually involved in a creative pursuit, it releases positive endorphins in your body. It's a very healthy thing. If you can find a way to be creative when you're struggling with your mood or anxiety or a substance abuse, it will improve to some degree what you're doing. So I love that that's one of your pillars. When you think about it, some of the greatest artists come from some of the darkest places. Can oh, be, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's a way to express yourself and get stuff out from inside of you to out. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a cool thing. Your fourth pillar is fitness. Tell us about that. Fitness. So that's what I'm over. Um, we have community classes where you can either sign up or be scholarship, a membership. Um, we connect, we do a little bit of strength, some. Lots of kettlebell stuff, some barbell stuff, some hit training, but really it's the safest gym environment I've ever been in, meaning like nobody cares what weight you're doing. Nobody cares how fast you go. It's just about moving. Everything's kind of in a partnership too. It's a lot of like I go, you go stuff. So I get to rest when you're moving. You get to rest when I'm moving. Um, and it's really, really cool. We offer free boot camp and Ian teaches that on Saturdays at mm-hmm. 10 a.m. And that's just an experience that everybody should be a part of. Ian Acker, of course, we've had him on. He's the founder mm-hmm. of Fit to Recover. And uh, I remember my first introduction was Fit to Recover. When I was in recovery, we'd go there on Sundays. I remember circling up, talking about, you know, goals and intentions and then sweating. And, uh, you know, some of us were walking, some of us were running, and it was all at your own pace. But you were doing something. Yep. Doing something and doing it together. And it's surprising when you lean on each other what you can do. What's great is it's, um, we've talked about this before, I feel like it's a place where even if you're not necessarily somebody with a background in working out, but you want, you see the value in fitness being part of your recovery plan, you can go there and start at whatever level you're at. Yep. It's very true. In fact, we... And I think a lot of people don't go to gyms who fit that category. You've always been into fitness. I played sports growing up. So those people with a background might be more comfortable trying to get into shape. But if you've never done that, it's pretty intimidating. It is. To go to a gym. And this is a different environment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We definitely, we program more for just regular regular people we're not we're not trying to win any awards <laughs> well i hope you win awards because well, we win all the awards yeah. <laughs> we win all the best of state because yeah. we're we're doing amazing you are doing we're not amazing. trying to win athletic awards how about that i love it <laughs> the important awards well chelsea thank you for stopping by and sharing your story i think it's going to help and i'm impressed with you uh i'm very thankful for your willingness to share uh congratulations on the eight months and keep going and we'd love to have you back thank you so much i'd love yeah, to come absolutely. back absolutely Any thoughts, Dr. Matt? My thought, so you've shared a lot of great stuff, and I appreciate you doing that because it it inspires our listeners for sure. My takeaway, I guess, is kind of back to one of my favorite things, which is the goodness of fit model of success, meaning that success in any area of life is much more a product of how well things fit as opposed to the things themselves. So when you said you went to a recovery center that you've heard good things about since, but it wasn't a good fit for you. It didn't feel like the right fit. And, and, and in fact, you know, some of the things that happened there might've contributed and indirectly to relapse. Um, But you found you have, you didn't give up and you found other options that have been a good fit for you. Now you're in AA, now you're, you've incorporated your passion of exercise into your recovery. Um, you were, you've worked with therapists that felt like a good fit. They understand you and you feel uh, safe, like you've said, working there. So I guess I want to say to people out there, keep that in mind. If you need to be successful in your recovery, it's not so much about individual parts. It's keep looking for the, the right fit for you. There are certain people in our lives that are just not a good fit for us. Absolutely. And they might be great in somebody else's life or jobs, for example, that, you know, you, you, like you said, you were hating that other job. Well, somebody else might have liked that job, but it wasn't a good fit for you. So, you know what, when things aren't a good fit, they, they, they hold us back from the amount of success we could be having. And if you're trying to, if you're thinking of going into recovery and you're listening to the show, just keep that in mind that if you can find the right fit, the right people, the right environment, you are going to be successful if you're looking for that fit. And so I guess that's, and I think that would go into, you know, my thoughts is, is, um, 
I think you're a wonderful example of how to overcome a horrible disease. And it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up. Uh, you know, you've been knocked down a bunch of times. And you've thrown your hands up in there and said, well, maybe this is it. But you always found the will to fight. And here you are fighting another day. And like I said earlier, my sobriety is rented every day. Yeah. And the payment's due. I think one of your payments ought to be to go to the open mic night and do some stand-up. I could love to do that. I would love to come you down there and should. do that. It would be fun. It's on Friday. Okay. You should come. 6.30. Well, we'll, maybe we'll come down and do it. I think <laughs> it would be wonderful. I think that would be great. And I'm so impressed with everything that Ian and Fit to Recover is doing. And Thank so you. if people want to find out more information about that, where do they go? FitToRecover.org. There you go. <laughs> thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Yeah. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.